Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. Our guest in a few minutes is Bob Dumas, who will share with us a very personal story about a drug conviction he received about 20 years ago. We'll also talk a little bit about the whole marijuana debate going on in our local towns and the petition going on in in the town of Carmel. But first, we have on our show our three editors, including Bob Dumas, who is the editor of Mayapac News and has been with us for over six and a half years. We also have Brian Marshauser. He's the editor of Yorktown News and the Katona Lewisboro Times, and he has been with us for over eight years. And our newest editor, Tom Walagorski, who has been with us for half a year. Tom is the editor of the Somers Record and North Salem News. First off, I have some upsetting news to announce to our listeners. Tracy Beckerman, who has been with a columnist with our newspapers from the beginning, just signed an exclusive contract with Creators Syndicate which distributes to 2,200 newspapers worldwide. Congratulations to Tracy Beckerman. Unfortunately for us, we will no longer be able to run her column, but she will continue to publish a column with us through the end of August. Anyway, I just want to launch into a conversation with our editors. Brian, you had some interesting insight into what interests our readers a couple days ago. No, it's not critical race theory. It's nothing to do with anything national. What is it, Brian? business. What's opening? What's closing? People want to know what the new stores are on Main Street. You know, what happened to their favorite cafe, why it's leaving. Those are the stories people want to know. You found on Tap Into that was some of the biggest stories of the year. Right. In recent weeks, I've been looking closely at our analytics. You know, in Katona, the biggest story far and away was LMNOP Bakery, which is a new bakery that's opening on Katona Avenue sometime in the future. More than tripled our previous high story in terms of page views. and. Over in Yorktown, it's the same thing. And I'll get to this more in a minute, but Panera is closing in Yorktown or actually has already closed by the time we're speaking now. That is the second most viewed story of the year in Yorktown, which is saying a lot because that is a very busy town. Interesting. And I guess what's the scuttlebutt going on right now? What are you working on? What's going on right now in in your two towns? So, I mean, I'll get a little more into Panera and, and because I think this does have regional interest. There is another Panera. There's a few more Paneras in Westchester, including one in the Cortland Town Center. But the Panera Bread in Yorktown has been an institution for the last 15 years. It's a meeting place. It's where whenever I'm meeting a source, it's where I say, hey, you want to meet a Panera? It's a great spot. It's where I go sometimes with my laptop to do work. So I think a lot of people in town will miss it. So people were pretty upset by that. And I get scooped by Yorktown families more than I care to admit. So one such instance was last week with Panera Bread in Yorktown. And then what happened was an employee of the store, which is located in the Triangle Center, went on Facebook and revealed that the store was closing at the end of the month. And I was finally able to get confirmation from the landlord, which owns the Triangle Center. And we published that exclusive report on tapintoyorktown.net. It's gotten quite a bit of traction there. Like I said, it was our second most viewed story of the year, even more page views than the Trader Joe's story, believe it or not. Yeah, so people really love that Panera. And the big question whenever we post a a story about a store closing is why? You know, everyone assumes, I think, that 
rent is increasing. Everyone wants to jump down the landlord's throat and get mad at them for increasing rents. But, you know, I, so I asked the landlord and he, out of respect for the owner, didn't want to speculate on why the owner had left. So I reached out to the owner twice on two separate occasions. He did not get back to me. So I went back to the landlord, asked point blank whether a rent increase had anything to do with it. And his quote was that I asked him to make us an offer regarding the rent that would allow them to be successful while at the same time preserving their tenancy. He simply said the decision has been made and they are leaving. So he danced around it a little bit, didn't say yes, rent's increasing. No, it wasn't increasing. But he basically said that, you know, we were willing to work with them and they weren't negotiating. And he speculated it might have had something to do with market conditions. This guy actually owns a lot of franchises around here. It's not just the Panera in Yorktown. And, you know, obviously when you're a franchise owner, the franchise may make you make modifications, costly modifications to modernize it might have not been worth it. So that's basically where we stand with the Panera in Yorktown. It's officially closed and, and they're marketing it. Hey, Brian, you also mentioned, you know, talking about getting scooped by your 10 families. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because, you know, we see some of this on Facebook. I think I want to emphasize and I want to get your thoughts on that. Our newspapers, you know, as professional newspapers, professional journalists, we don't peddle in conspiracies or rumors. So you know, I'm assuming some of getting scooped just has to do with the fact that you know, you're not going to be publishing a rumor, basically. First of all, I live in Yorktown. So I actually use Yorktown families just in personal life. Sometimes I have questions. I recently tried to unload a dishwasher from my house. But, so, but anyway, Yorktown families, for the most part, are used as a jumping off point. Uh, sometimes they will get stories months ahead of me and they say, why don't you have it? It's because we need to verify. Unfortunately, it's a different set of standards. Like with Uncle Giuseppe's, for example, that's the best example I can give right now. Rumor has it they're moving from the their store right now on Downing Drive and they're moving across the street into the old food emporium building. And it's the worst kept secret in town at this point. Uncle Giuseppe's won't verify with me. Wink, wink. But, you know, it's happening. I think everybody knows it's happening. And we haven't officially reported that because we can't verify it. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> so, you know, that rumor has been around for months. So it's a different set of standards, of course. Obviously, uh, as a media outlet where we distribute to thousands of readers, you know, we got to be a little bit more careful. And uh, Tom, this morning, I uh, sent you a Facebook post from Lee Goldberg. It's his 25-year anniversary at ABC News for as a weatherman. I just want to say that, you know, I, I hope we get a good uh, scoop with Lee Goldberg on this. So absolutely. Somers resident, quarter of a century reporting the weather. I mean, that's a great story right there. And uh, also a big accomplishment for Mr. Goldberg. That's some really good news coming out of our town. Yeah. And anything else on the horizon? We have a little bit of everything. It's been there has been no summer slowdown in either Somers or North Salem. In Somers, we recently appointed a uh, new police chief, which um, the outgoing was a uh, was Chief Driscoll. He had been with the force for about 35 years. So there was obviously some, some big shoes to fill for his successor, uh, Brian Linkletter. But uh, Mr. Linkletter, he's been with the force since 2003. We had a great interview with him, said that he, you know, he brings a lot of experience. He's got a great uh, crew around him, continue to keep the community safe. As far as the schools go, there was going to be a universal pre-K program that was going to be launched in Somers schools. That actually has been delayed. The district decided to delay the opening of the program until January. That was because they had uh, two vendors that were interested, and there was actually a third vendor that came forward. So they decided to wait on that until the second half of the year. The uh, Universal Pre-K, for anybody that doesn't know, it's an educational program that's designed for three- and four-year-old students to basically give them a leg up as they kind of enter their educational journey and everything. And it's meant to put everybody on a level educational playing field. Does every resident who has a three and four-year-old qualify for that? 
paid for through tax dollars? Yep, it's paid through tax dollars and grants from the state. So I'm assuming that could also impact private preschools that rely on that clientele as well. Oh, absolutely. But you know, at the end of the day, once this gets going, this is going to be a great thing for the local families and students and everything. So it'll be, a, it'll be exciting once that gets launched through the district in January. And a um, nice little feel-good story too. Um, the sports in Somers have not slowed down. We've actually had two youth soccer programs that have been performing at a high level on the national level. We had the um, Somers Lady Hammers. They're the uh, girls 13 and under football club. They actually made it to the Eastern Regional Finals. They had an undefeated season until they, uh, until they finally lost to a, um, a New England team. And there was also the uh, Somers Arsenal, which um, just made it very far in the, uh, in the national tournament. And they actually received, for their age bracket, they received a number one national ranking, which is a you know, huge deal for our local youth sports and everything. So that was you know, definitely a lot of good news coming out of Somers these days. And uh, as far as North Salem goes, we have one of those stories uh, to piggyback off Brian's point about you know local businesses and those kind of things being very you know of interest to our readers and the community. We actually have one that checks a whole bunch of boxes. This was breaking news as of yesterday. So um, North in North Salem, you have the Schoolhouse Theater, which has kind of been a cornerstone of the local performing arts community. And um, like any other theater, because of the pandemic, they've been hurting for funds and they were trying to get fundraisers off the ground and, you know, as they're trying to welcome people back in. And actually, there is a deal in place that the town of North Salem will actually be purchasing the schoolhouse theater. Oh, wow. Yet to be finalized, but it was announced by the town supervisor that they're going to be purchasing it. And and that's the continued theater. The future of the schoolhouse theater itself is a little uncertain. The town wants to use it for a community center, a senior center. There's a lot of space there. It can be used for a lot of things. And there had been rumblings of this, but as we already pointed out earlier in the podcast, you know, we don't deal in rumors and, and whispers around town, but now this is something concrete. And it'll be interesting to see how the, if they can work out a deal between the town and the schoolhouse theater to allow performing arts to continue there. And Bob Dumas... Uh, editor mm-hmm. of Mayapack News. Uh, what's the scuttlebutt in the Mayapack area? As opposed to you guys, Mayapack's been kind of sluggish this summer. You know, nothing's blown up or gotten robbed or anything like that. So finding front page stuff, it's miraculously things always work out at the 11th hour. But like the story I had planned, the story for next week is um, everybody knows on Lake Mayapack, we have Petra Island where the Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright House is located that's owned by a local resident named Frank Macero, who just put out a book, his biography about how he came to own that house. And he was having a big deal this afternoon where he's taking uh, the press out on a boat out on the island, giving a tour of the house. And we were going to do a big front page story about it. But because of the weather and impending thunderstorm, that thing has been postponed until Monday. So we're still covering it, but it's going to miss this week's news cycle. So I'm scrambling to find something else here. That's the thing that's immediate in front of me. But for like long range stuff, the big thing that's been going on in Pat Carmel lately is development. You know, when we had our reval a couple of years ago, the one thing that it showed was we haven't had any commercial development in about 20 years the ongoing controversy of both the town board and planning board is the development of more housing. We have a plan on the table right now for a 150 unit thing that's like right on the Mayapak Carmel border down by the hospital that was up at the planning board last night. And it's going to be 75 units of market value and 75 units of affordable housing, all with the same facade, all on the same campus and everything like that. So that might move up to my front page. We'll see how things go. 
And then also, going back to the ongoing theme of cannabis, our petition to make that a permissive referendum is really gaining a lot of traction. I'm like 90% sure that's going to end up on the ballot. They have a very strong social media presence. You can't turn around online without seeing their little sign this, sign that, make an appointment to come see us. They're everywhere, you know. So I think uh, it's interesting to follow that throughout the summer as, as it makes progress. The big news going on right now, I mean, this is a national story, but it's really impacting us locally, is just COVID rates, the Delta variant, oh, yeah. and kind of the breakthrough. Um, Brian, you had some statistics you wanted to share. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, hate to end on a downer, but the positive rate of infection for COVID-19 is trending in the wrong direction, unfortunately. On July 4th, around the holiday, we were at our lows pretty much since this whole pandemic started. Uh, only 0.4% of the nearly 3,000 people tested in Westchester, so that's about 11 people, tested positive for the virus. But three weeks later, that number has now quadrupled to 1.81%. And Putnam County is following a similar trend. You know, we're still nowhere near the peak number when that positivity rate was as high as 7, 8, 9%. So, you know, nine out of every 100 people who were getting tested were testing positive. But we're already seeing mass restrictions starting to return in some parts of the country. And it should be noted, however, that new hospitalizations are not increasing at that same rate. According to the state's dashboard, new hospitalizations in the mid-Hudson region, which we're in, are still down from the start of June. We were at 0.22 hospitalizations per 100,000 residents, and now we're at 0.4. So it's increasing, but not at the rate of infection. Draw your own conclusions. You know, it seems like vaccinated people may be testing positive, but not being hospitalized. That might be what we're seeing with the rates going up, uh, the hospitalizations not quite rising so sharply. So just wanted to add that in. And actually, I do want to point out that we are talking right now on July 29th. Obviously, that's the one challenge with uh, COVID is that it's just a, it's an ever-evolving story. So what's said on July 29th may not be totally accurate when if someone listens to this on August 5th. Where did you get those Putnam County information, Brian? Because of the... Well, Health department has been conspicuously quiet in recent weeks. The state has a very useful app called COVID Alert NY. You can just download that app on the front page. They'll give you the positivity rates uh, right there. And you can scroll by county. So right now in Putnam County, the positive rate is 1.88%. And that was last reported on July 27th. 1.88% is the positivity rate in Putnam. I think in, uh, like I said, in Westchester, it was 1.81%. All right. Well, I mean, obviously not great, but, you know, uh, that's useful information. We appreciate that. All right, gentlemen, I appreciate your uh, participation and I hope to do this again. You know, uh, hopefully we make this a regular, uh, a regular occurrence. So thank you very much for this. Thanks, Brett. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Brett. Our next guest is the editor of Mayapac News, Bob Dumas, who has been with Halston Media for over six and a half years. He's not just an employee. He's a good friend. He's also truly dedicated to the town of Carmel, including, of course, its hamlets of Mayapak and Mayapak Falls, and specifically the Mayapak Central School District, which is the mission of our coverage at Mayapak News. Before we launch into your life story, Bob, you recently had a series of health scares. Can you give our audience an update on your health? Okay. Well, thanks, Brett. Yeah, a lot of people are aware of what's happened to me because I won't shut up on Facebook about it, and I wrote a column about it. So um, just a condensed version. First of all, I'm feeling good, and I want to thank everybody, all our readers and friends and coworkers for their good wishes and uh, the help they've given me. It's been amazing, the outpouring. Um, the best thing was I got handmade um, 
get well cards from the Mayapak Girl Scouts and that sent me over the moon. That was amazing. Back in April, I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. Apparently, I'd also had a minor heart attack. I think if you have one of those, nothing's minor, but I guess relatively speaking, it was a minor heart attack. I have something called hypothyroidism, which means my thyroid isn't uh, working up to speed. Uh, It's slowed down and it's all caused by diabetes, which has caused swelling in my legs. So it's a whole litany of things all related to the diabetes. And then back on uh, early July, early part of this month, I had a bypass operation down at Lenox Hill Hospital in uh, Manhattan. And that was successful, they tell me. So I'm in the middle of recuperating from all that, working from home, still doing Mayapac News. I'm only able to do that thanks to a cadre of coworkers and freelancers. And we're still putting out a great newspaper. And I'm still seeing a lot of doctors. That'll continue for a while longer. They're keeping me on the straight and narrow. Hopefully, I'll come out the other end of this better than ever. But that's where I am right now. I have good days and okay days. Sometimes I still suffer from a lot of fatigue. I get winded if I have to go upstairs, but doctors told me that's to be expected. So anyway, I'm feeling good. As the day moves on, I get more and more energy. So it's like right now I feel pretty good. So it depends on when you ask me. (laughs) And Bob, it it seems a little serendipitous. I know you were not totally thrilled about our office. Uh, You know, we published five newspapers, including Mm -hmm. APAC News. And uh, at the end of December 2020, in response to the pandemic and how everybody was sort of responding to it, and also just from financial reasons, just sort of saying, okay, well, technology exists to really do this. We shut down our office. We have a work share space now in Mount Kisco, you know, and we have a little kind of office nook as well in, in Mayapak as well. But basically, everybody's working full time from home. So that sort of seems to have been kind of serendipitous. It was a blessing in disguise. And yes, um, I was not happy about it in the beginning because basically I got into this business many years ago. And one of the reasons that drew me is like, I'm a people person. I like interacting with people and I like collaboration and teamwork. And that's uh, anybody who's been in this business knows um, you're not an island. People see Mayapac News, they don't realize how many people had a hand in putting it out there. It's not just me. And I love the energy the synergy in the office, especially on deadline days, you know, it can get pretty heated. It can get a lot of fun. It can get crazy. And I love that exchange and just being able to go into another room and talk to somebody about an issue, a problem, uh, something interesting, and just have that exchange and remedy the issue right then and there. Now, yes, we have the technology. We can do it all at home and it creates a whole different set of challenges. But I knew I was going to miss hanging out with my coworkers. And of course I do, you know, I, I miss that teamwork and stuff. But at the end of the day, because of what happened to me, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because if the pandemic had never happened and we were still at our office in Somers, I would be working at home <laughs> because yeah, yeah. of my illness. I, I would be here anyway. So, you know, at the end of the day, it worked out okay. I'm getting used to it. I still miss my coworkers and all that that I just mentioned and stuff, but it is what it is and we do the best we can. Uh, You know, I miss being able to meet with our readers when they would come to the office to see me and tell me about stories or drop off stuff for me. We're not able to do that anymore. I miss that, but 
we're finding an end around and it's coming out okay. So yeah, at the end of the day, I complained about it, but it worked out in the end, at least for now. We'll continue to work, uh, you know, as a business to make sure that we do uh, see each other frequently. And you know, I am. Yeah, we have our Zoom meetings and stuff like that. And yeah, as yeah. everybody out there in the world is accustomed to those and stuff, and they're a nice, you know, we're doing the best we can under the hand that was dealt us. You know? Yeah, and I have to say, it makes me feel bad as as the publisher CEO to to you know have kind of made that decision, but. It's it's the way that you know a small business uh, is kind of forced to survive in a small journalism business. So uh, yeah, yeah, if it keeps the business alive and well, I'm all in favor of it. Obviously, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, Bob, I found a pivotal event in your life to be quite newsworthy, given the current debates taking place in our towns right now, including mm-hmm. the town of Carmel, and, and that was sort of the impetus for us uh, talking today, you know, there's a petition drive underway to allow marijuana dispensaries to operate locally in in the town of Carmel. I believe that one of the arguments that had been made ahead of New York State legalizing marijuana is that what many see as a harmless and perhaps even beneficial substance at best, and what others equate as being no more harmful than alcohol, and, you know, others obviously feel feel are are more critical of it than than they are of alcohol as well. But it's really created a, a lot of otherwise law-abiding citizens into people with criminal records. I think it's very brave of you to participate in this podcast and reveal today that you fall into that category. Can you take mm-hmm. us back to the very beginning? And, and I know it starts in California. It did. I, uh, for the, you know, and I've written about this in my column that I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 20 years from the early 90s until about 2008 when I you know, when I came back to New York, New York is where I grew up, up in Pauling, and I moved back there. So yeah, while I was in LA, now this all happened 20 years ago. So obviously I have a memory of most of it, but some of the details get a little foggy as time moves on. So I'll do my best in recounting the story. But yes, I was arrested in 2002, August 29th. Um, <laughs> so I do remember the day. I was arrested and charged with three felonies at the time and ended up being reduced. But I'll try to tell the story in chronological order. But basically, um, for growing cannabis, something that if we were doing it today, we would not gotten any trouble for whatsoever other than needing the necessary permits to do what we were doing. But yeah, at the time, what we were doing was about as illegal as you could get. You were not the expert grower, though. We're going to change names to protect the guilty here and some of this stuff. So I'm not going to go into. But yeah, I I was like a tertiary partner on all this. My primary role was to see people started grow houses back in the day where they would grow marijuana in a certain portion of the house. And the way they would get caught is these were basically empty, abandoned houses. And, you know, when... Uh, neighbors would see people visiting them or lights on or, you know, large electric bills to Con Ed and stuff like that. It would be a red flag and that was how they would get caught. So the way around that is to have somebody live in the house so it looks like a normal house with people coming and going under. And so that was basically, I had a full-time job. I was working as an editor, as a ed- senior editor at a magazine out there. So my focus was not on the cannabis grow out in the garage. That was the guy who owned the house who was doing it. And, you know, let's just say I was part of the quality control aspect of it um, and, <laughs> uh, and helped out a little bit with cultivation and stuff. But I wasn't involved in the day-to-day thing. But 
you know, to the police and the prosecutors, that's uh, not really very important to them. So it wasn't my operation. I wasn't the main guy, if you will. And, and, uh, and how did you, um, I mean, I guess, take us through how that day. that day, I guess, how I guess the police figured it out. So the house I was living with had the garden out in the garage and a couple of the other rooms were used for other processes too. It's a very complex uh, process. People think you put a seed out in the lawn, you grow a plant and then you dry it out and that's it. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, it's very a lot of science involved and as far as nutrients for the plants and things like that. So we had other rooms in the house that were used for drying it other rooms that were used for growing the clones, the little babies that you would use to start your next crop of plants after the harvest, you had to keep it going. So you were constantly needing cuttings from a mother plant. So you're constantly growing. So there was other rooms dedicated to that sort of stuff. But um, what I didn't know at the time is my quote unquote partner in all this he had several other grow rooms going at other houses. So he had two or three other places. And he was grossing millions of dollars. A pound of weed back then cost about $4,000 for a pound of weed. So if you get maybe 40, 50 pounds out of a harvest, well, do the math. That's a lot of money. And he's doing harvests four times a year in four different houses after a few years. That adds up nicely. So what he was doing that I didn't know is he was taking some of the finished product and mailing it back to New York. Dangerous thing to do to start with just to get it from point A to point B. And then it would get back to New York to his pointman there who would then turn around and distribute it to smaller sellers. Okay, One of those smaller sellers back in New York was going through a divorce and his wife ratted him out to the local police. You know, like when they were splitting up the assets, she was pissed that she wasn't getting any of the weed money. So she ratted him out to her lawyer who turned around and turned it into the police. They trailed it all the way back to LA and tipped off the LA police who began following my partner to all his various grow houses over the period of like weeks and months. And they were monitoring his phone calls so it got to the point where they were ready to do their raids. They raided all his grow houses at the same time that morning, August 29th, including where I live. So on that particular morning, I got up. I can't remember. It was during the week. It was a, a work day. I got up, showered, got dressed, went to work. And I'm driving down the road on my way to work. And I look in the rear view mirror and there's a car behind me that all of a sudden turns on. It's lights. It's got flashing lights. It wasn't a cop car. It was an unmarked car. So I'm like, what the hell is this? So I pull over into a shopping mall, a strip mall where there's a grocery store because I wasn't speeding. It was like 30 miles an hour where he originally started to put the lights on. So I pulled into the parking lot and I'm going through my glove box looking for insurance and registration that I know I'm going to need to show him. And then when I look back up, I'm surrounded by cop cars with cops all out of the car with guns pointed towards me and speaking to me through a megaphone saying, telling me to get out of the car with my hands up right away. As soon as I see all this, as frightening as it was, I right away knew what it was all about. My heart sunk. I get out of the car. They tell me, put my hands on the hood of the car. 
And as soon as I did that, they were all over me, frisking me, handcuffing me, asking me if I knew why this was happening. And all I said was, I don't know, maybe. And they put me in the back of a cruiser, drove me back up to my house. Um, When we got back up there, the place was crawling with cops. They had knocked the door down, which seemed overkill to me. And the place was crawling with cops. And they plopped me on the couch while I sat there for about four or five hours while they cleaned the place out, occasionally making snarky remarks to me. And that's how the whole thing got going. And so I didn't know about him mailing the stuff back to New York till way later in this whole process. You know, I was just as in the dark as like how they found out about it and how that all happened for the first you know, month or so until my lawyer was able to figure out how it all got started. So you were not involved in the distribution or sales. You were just sort of involved in sort of living kind of, I, I assume, rent free kind of. Um, yep. I was living rent-free, yeah. yeah. And so I faced three felony charges. One of them was conspiracy to maintain a grow house, which is something that I didn't even know existed. The other one was theft of services, and I'll explain that in a second. And then also possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute. So those were the three big felonies. Theft of services. What I mentioned earlier in the interview, that one of the ways police discover these grow rooms is because of your electric bill, con ed or whatever your services will notice extremely above average high electric bills. And it'll set off a red flag, especially if it's a house where nobody is supposed to be living or, you know, maybe one person lives, but they see constant electric bills way over the roof. So, so actually, Bob, I want to, I want to interrupt for one second. This is very, very interesting. So when we moved um, out of our office in December, I did locate the server that operates our business into my house. And um, my electric bills for my house have gone through the roof. Now, Halston Media does pay rent to the Freeman family for housing my office and the server. But now I'm a little paranoid because my electric bill has gone <laughs> gone way up. So, I, so for the record, it's a server. It's not a grow house. <laughs> yeah, well, if you get some detectives showing up one day, you'll know why. So that's a cliche way for law enforcement to track down some of these grow houses. You know, they see these high electric bills. So my partner in all this, being aware of this, one of the things he did and how he avoided electrocuting himself is beyond me. The guy was not rowing with both oars in the water, but Mm -hmm. he went into the junction box and, you know, I'm not going to go into details and waste time, but they basically say he rewired some of the electricity coming in from the pool and had it bypass the meter that you know, everybody has on the outside of the house and had it go directly into the grow room. So it's 220. So he split it up into 110 and 110 and sent one of the wires, the main wires, and it totally bypassed the meter. So we were not getting these high electric bills. And basically, he was stealing electricity from the electric company. You know, And that's just like going into a store and shoplifting or going and stealing some, a car. You know, it's, it's theft of services. And actually... Of the three charges, it's one the prosecutors took the most grievously, you know, mm-hmm. of the ones. And, you know, I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't involved in it. By the time I moved in that house, he had already done it. And when he showed me what he did, I almost passed out. I said, you could have killed yourself trying that, you know. 
because uh, he's using a, a, a sawzall. Because these wires are not just dangling here, they're inside metal pipes, and you have to open up these metal pipes, and you have to. And if he had cut too deep, he would have cut right into the wire with a metal saw, and you know we'd be having a whole different conversation right now. Mm-hmm. But he he did it, and he did it successfully. Leo, you know, we talk about electricity in a grow room. You use a lot of lights. You have to obviously have grow lights for the plants. You use a lot of pumps to pump water. You use a lot of electricity to run fans. You have to have fans because you need to move the air around inside the grow room. So there was a lot of big fans, both regular oscillating floor fans. And then these things they call squirrel fans that are shaped like a conch. And they are the ones that suck the air out of the room and sent it out of the building because you got to constantly replace it with fresh air. So, you know, you got to recreate the outdoors indoors is basically Mm -hmm. what you're doing. So you use a lot of electricity to do that. So anyway, that was one of the uh, charges that were filed against me. So anyway, that day after uh, they were finished with my house, they threw me back into the the squad car. They brought me over to police headquarters in Van Nuys, California, where... um, I was plopped down, just like you see on TV. I was plopped in one of those interrogation rooms with a couple of detectives where they questioned me and took statements from me. And the you know, lawyers always tell you when you get arrested, shut up. I did not. (laughs) I should have, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, I learned a big, you know, so when they tell you when you're arrested to shut up and wait for your lawyer, do that, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I didn't and I'm paying for it. So what did you eventually get convicted of? So what they do is when you have multiple defendants in a case like that, because it was both me and my partner, the prosecution doesn't want you to split you up. They don't want you to each have your own trial or be separate. They want to keep everything together. It's harder to defend it that way because each guy might have a different story but what happened was, and I don't want to get too deep into the minutiae because it gets complicated, but a friend back in New York who was also in law enforcement and was kind of part of the deal that discovered the whole issue in New York that got back, you know, he stepped in on my behalf and was able to, through the prosecutor, get us separated. So we each had our own case. You know, how he did that, I'm not going to go into, but he was able to do that. And once we had our own case, we were able to make our own plea and our own thing. And as they investigated more, they saw that I really did have a more diminished role. And we were able to reduce the charges to uh, just the single felony charge of conspiracy to maintain a grow house. So that was, so I ended up being sentenced to um, 30 days in jail. Now, I knew that if I had to go away for 30 days, I was going to lose my job. So we were able to find a place where I could go to jail just on weekends, two or three days at a time until we used up all the 30 days. You have to pay for that. So I'm paying for a lot. I'm paying for a lawyer. You wouldn't believe how much it costs to be arrested. I'm talking about tens and tens of thousands of dollars, especially if you have huge felony charges looming over you like that. So to avoid having to go to a county jail or a real prison and go to a city jail just on weekends where I'm basically in a cell with drunk drivers and people with misdemeanors and stuff like that. So what I would do is I'd get out of work on Friday, and then I drove from downtown L.A. out to a suburb called Monterey Park, 
and go to the town hall of Monterey Park, the city hall. And that's where the police department was in. Check in. That's where the jail was. And kind of check in for the weekend. Getting to know some of the same guys there that you'd see weekend after weekend. And then they would let me out on Sunday and I would drive back home, then start work again on Monday until all the uh, days were used up. I assume this is not like going to a hotel. No, no, but it wasn't as bad as going to a, a, you know, like the county jail or going to a prison, you know. You know, listen, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but I never was any, felt like I was in any danger. It was just mostly boredom. I'd bring stuff to read. As you might imagine, the beds aren't all that comfortable. You don't get a pillow or anything like that. So they give you a jumpsuit to wear, but you don't have to wear it. I'm only speaking on behalf of how this jail ran, but they give you a jumpsuit, which most people would roll up into like a giant roll and use that as a pillow. You only had to wear the jumpsuit if you were coming out of the cell. If uh, if they were taking you somewhere, they'd make you put that on to come out of the cell. And one of the things I've always volunteered for was at mealtime to go help with the meal preparation, which meant coming down to the little kitchen, which was like 10 foot by 10 foot. And they had all these... um, meals that you had to put in the microwave. So you sat there and you microwaved. They had a TV in that room. So that's why everybody wanted to do this. You could microwave all the meals while watching TV, then put them out of cart and roll them out and bring them to the cells. So I did that a lot while I was there just to give you something to do to get out of the cell and stretch your legs and see a different room and watch a little TV. So I did that every weekend from around Memorial Day weekend till about Labor Day weekend in um 2002 and then i so i fulfilled my jail obligation there was other stipulations in my sentence i was supposed to go to a counseling group where that met once a week i had to go in and sign in every week because it was part of my sentence i was the only one in the counseling group there for marijuana everybody else was there for like cocaine heroin crystal meth and so they kind of made fun of me, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, even the counselor, the guy who ran the group said, what the hell are you even doing here? Because I wasn't there because I was smoking it or taking it. I was there because I was growing it. So I yeah. wasn't even there as an addict of any kind, you know, but I had to do it. And actually, I became like the counselor's secondhand man. Like he would be out a week and he let me run the group. You mm-hmm. know, that was one of the things I had to do. And as being part of that group. One of the things that you had to do was go to a MA group or NA, Narcotics Anonymous or Marijuana Anonymous, things that I didn't even know exist. They're just like AA, but instead of alcohol, it's narcotic. So I had to go to one of these meetings every week and then have them sign off on that and then turn in my slips. And this all costs money, by the way. None of yeah. this is free. Mm-hmm. I had to pay for all this. One of the things, they made a, um, a law back in... Uh, early 2000s, where all felons had to go had their DNA put in a database. So my DNA is out there in a database. So it's a federal database. And I had to go to this place in downtown LA at like five in the morning and go and have my throat swabbed by one of those long Q-tips, kind of similar to what they do COVID tests up your nose. As long as they swab the back of your throat, they put it in a um, 
test tube and off your DNA goes to some database. So if I was to commit a crime somewhere else and they found my DNA, they'd be able to figure out who I was just like that. So, And you pay for that. that again, mm-hmm. that costs money. They charge you to have your own DNA swab. It seems like every time I turned around, they were sending me a bill for something. So yeah, you know, they talk about things that happen in your life that you kind of say, divide your life into before and after. You know, this was my life before. This is my life after. This is what this was like for me. Totally different life after. How how did it impact your job at that magazine? At the beginning, the only one who knew about it was my direct boss, my uh, editor-in-chief. And she was really cool. We were friends. I told her about it because it wasn't impacting my job yet. I had to miss a little day here and there because of a court date or something like that. But I would just, I never missed a sick day. So I would use a sick day to get, you know, call in sick and go to court. It, it never impacted my job because I went to jail on weekends. So, mm-hmm. but I told her about it just because we were friends. And when I would come back to work on Monday, she would call me into her office because she wanted to know like what jail was like that weekend. Did I have any stories to tell? Yeah. So we would sit there on Monday morning, have coffee together and go over my weekend, you know. And again, I'm not going to get into the details of all this, but, and we stumbled along like this for a couple of years. It starts to wear you down. It was during this period that I lost both my parents, both my parents passed away. So I had a lot of bad things happen to me all, all at the same time. And during this period, the partner that I mentioned who got much worse than me in this. He actually got sentenced to a small amount of prison time. I'm not sure exactly how long. And he was resentful that I was able to pull off what I did and avoid big prison time that I was kind of pulled away from him and given a separate trial. He was always resentful of that and basically, you know, had it out for me. And so through some things, you know, he made some phone calls. So The big company, which was based in Washington, D.C., that owned my company, they found out about what happened to me. People higher than my editor and chief found out about it, and I was fired. You know, even though it was like two years, almost two years after the event actually happened, when I thought I finally had it under control and it was just about in the rearview mirror, all of a sudden, you know, I was, and again, I'm telling the shortened version. There's a lot more details than that, but that's basically what happened. So I was fine in the wake of it for the first couple of years, but because it was brought to the attention of the higher ups. And it's kind of funny because, like I said, everything that uh, we did would be considered totally illegal. Now we would need permits and all the, and some other health department regulations. But for the most part, nobody would be going to jail, you know, if we had all the right kind of permits. You know, if we didn't, we might get a fine for not having the right permit, but nobody would be getting any criminal charges or anything like that. And when I look back on all that, and recreational cannabis was made legal two years after I moved away from California. And you also received a fine as well, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember how uh, $50,000 fine, I believe it was. It was five figures. I can't remember now. Yeah. It was a huge amount of money. Plus, I had a lawyer who wasn't cheap. I mean, he did an amazing job, but, you know, I was getting bills from him once a month that were four figures, you know, high four figures as he kind of helped me through the whole thing. You know, he was the one that helped me find the jail that I could go to on weekends. You know, not every jail will take. Most jails that let you just come for the weekend, they only want misdemeanors. 
I had that felony, but it was a nonviolent felony. So yeah. they were willing to take me. Yeah. I mean, just going back to the jail, I mean, if you, if you can, I mean, um, is there a, a particularly weird experience that kind of jumps out at you? It was pretty uneventful. I got to say that it's just weird. If you think about it, it's like I got in trouble for growing a plant. So they made me go sit in a room. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a weekend, you know, it's almost like, you know, like in elementary school, go stand in the corner. It just seems so weird. But we were always put in these cells that could hold four people at a time. And they were in a hallway that would have four or five cells. And there was this one guy who kept coming in and he was there because he was there for domestic violence. Mm. And he was never in the same cell with me. He was in here, but we all talked to each other. You know, we yelled down the hallway back and forth and we talk about baseball or wh whatever, you know, and this guy was, um, I'm not a big fan of spousal abuse. So he and I got in a few heated uh, arguments, which I was more than willing to do because we weren't in the same cell together. So that made me a little braver, you know, but then some of my other fellow cellmates told me I should chill out because you never know. Next week, we could wind up in the same cell together. So, course, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, you know, there was one guy that would show up every week and he had really weird, cool sneakers that he wore. And that became, you know, you know getting to know these people. But, not, you know, nobody ever, like, picked a fight with me or, or anything other than that domestic abuser. But he was in a different cell. It was hard to sleep. The lights are on 24-7. You hear keys jangling all the time. You hear doors opening and shutting, especially cell doors make a loud noise. So you didn't sleep a lot. It wasn't it wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't, you know, it could have let me put it this way, it could have been a lot, lot worse. You know, yeah, yeah. if anybody if you, you know, I've seen since then documentaries about LA County Jail considered one of the best worst places to go because it's so overcrowded. You know, it has like twice the capacity it was built to have. You know, there's a lot of gang activity in these places and, you know, a lot of violence right in the jail. I, I, I fortunately, I didn't have to go through any of that. I paid a lot of money to avoid going through it, but it was probably worth it. So. And, and um, a, a weird question, but you said you did a lot of reading. What Did you have any books that stand out in terms of your time when you were in, in the pokey? Well, I always brought the LA Times with me. We would read it cover together slowly over the weekend, but I would bring whatever novels I was reading at the time. I'm you know, 20 years ago, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was about the Chicago World's Fair in 1870 when there was a serial killer on the loose during that. True story. I don't know if a lot of people, but guy wrote a fictionalized novel based on that incident. I remember that was one of the books. I, I don't know why I remember that. It was an excellent book. It's kind of funny because all my fellow cellmates were amazed that I was such a reader because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was the only one who came in there with like a stack of books. Yeah. The, the Devil in the White City. That's it. Have you read that? How'd you know that? Um, well, I just Googled it as I was on the phone with you. But, um, uh, but Devil I, in the White I, City. I, I believe Lauren actually read it. So uh, Yeah, it's a yeah. fantastic book. Highly yeah. recommend it. You're in yeah. jail or out of jail. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, I know at some point when you were in LA, and I, I don't know if this is before or after this whole incident, you were involved with a yogurt business. Oh, yeah. Well, that was my original, uh, well, one of the main reasons for moving out there when I was living at home here in, in New York, and I was unemployed at the time. And this guy, he uh, was my partner or you know my boss in the cannabis growing thing. He originally reached out to me 
and said, I understand you're looking for work. I've started this frozen yogurt company here in LA and I'm looking for a partner. Somebody to help me and I'll make you an equity partner in it. So he flew me out. He paid for me to come out and check out LA, check out the business, explain to me what I, my role would be and how it would all work. And he set me up with an apartment that was above the yogurt factory. He said he would provide me with a car for the first six months. And so you know, I said, what the heck? So I came out there, we started this yogurt business and it was great for about three or four years. You know, we were making money and, you know, I was, uh, you know, I ended up getting my own place and my own car and everything was coming together. Then a whole bunch of stuff happened at the same time. We had an earthquake, we had the Rodney King riots, we had mudslides. We had a lot of things that impacted the local economy, knocked a lot of businesses out of business. We lost a lot of accounts. And our business, our our yogurt business ended up going down the tubes. We ended up not selling the business, but selling off all the assets piece by piece from all our trucks to our Mm -hmm. yogurt machines and our accounts, what was left of them. The main reason my partner brought me out there was not just the yogurt company, but also he wanted me to become a screenwriter. Mm. He had a lot of ideas. Again, I'm afraid to reveal too much because I don't want to reveal his identity, but he was involved in the movie industry on a certain level. He had a friend that was a screenwriter. He had this idea for a story, but he couldn't write. So he came out, he paid for me to go screen. He knew I was a writer. I had been a journalist for many years up to that point. I'd also had fiction published. So he knew I could write. I'd never written a screenplay. So when I got there, he sent me to screenwriter boot camp. He paid for me to go through that. He also bought me software for the computer. It's a software called Final Draft that helps you write screenplays. It formats everything on the page for you and so forth. And so we went through all that. We actually had a modicum of success doing that. So I was doing that. And then when we sold the assets to the yogurt business, I was able to live off that money for like a year or two while I wrote. We actually did get to go in and make some pitches at some studios. Lionsgate was one of them and stuff like that. We optioned some stuff, but nothing ever went into production. And eventually the money was running out and... I ended up going back into journalism. That's how I got the job at the magazine. I applied there and ended up getting the job at a place called Pool and Spa News. It was a business-to-business uh, trade magazine for the swimming pool, hot tub, and you know backyard industry, which I loved. <laughs> and when you got fired from that job, what was your next uh, move? Uh, normally, I would have just looked for another job, but because of all the legal stuff that had depleted my finances, you know, I was down to like my last few thousand dollars. So I knew that, you know, unless I could find another job quick, which I almost did, you know, I was one of the finalists for another magazine job, but I didn't get it. And so did you not get it because of your criminal history? No, not that I'm aware of. I got recommended to it by a former coworker at the pool and spa news job. He was in the art department. He did like page layout and stuff like that. And we had become friends and he had moved on to this other publishing company who was working for a magazine down there. And like I said, we were friends. So we were always talking on the phone. He knew what was happening to me. He goes, hey, I think we have an editorship open here. You want me to tell my 
boss about you? And I said, yes, please. So she ended up calling me his boss. And I went down for an interview. And then they called me one of the three finalists, blah, blah, blah. Then at the 11th hour, they went with somebody else. You know. So at that point, I knew. So I called my brother who was living back in Paul. He was retired. His kids were all grown. And they had a big house. I said, would you mind if I moved back to New York and stayed with you? until I got back on my feet. He said, you know, yes, of course. Uh, And I kind of knew this phone call was coming, you know. So that's what ended up happening. I ended up breaking down my apartment, leaving a lot of stuff behind because, you know, I was moving into a house that was already furnished and and moving cross country. Uh, That's a whole different podcast, folks. If you ever have to move across country, I have some strong opinions and recommendations about how to do that now that I've done it before, because that wasn't fun either. Um, Don't skimp on your movers, you know, don't look for the discount ones, you know, pick global van lines. They're going to cost a lot more, but they're not going to steal your stuff. Oh, no. no. Yeah. Yeah. I lost a lot of stuff. I also had to have my car transported. I wasn't going to drive across country. I had everything transported and flew and the idea being to get there and meet everything. But it took six weeks for my car to show up. And even then, the gas tank was damaged. So like, the oh, here's your car. And oh, by the way, you got to spend $600 on a new gas tank. So, But anyway, long story short, I made it home. My car made it home. About three quarters of my stuff made it there. And so I ended up looking for a new job locally. I ended up getting a job a couple months later at the late, great North County News out of Yorktown and uh, was hired to be deputy editor there. So I dove right back into the journalism game. And it was great because that job helped me network. And I made a lot of Northern Westchester, Putnam County connections while I was there. And a lot of people from that job still know me today. I sort of know the events that led for us to become acquainted as well and what led you to Mayapac News. So that's... uh, Well, real quickly with that, so... um, that newspaper in Yorktown, the North County, eventually went out of business, sadly, because it was 60-something years old. I ended up getting a job with a digital online platform called Daily Voice and working, in, again, in northern Westchester, again, with some of the same people that I knew from North County News. And again, meeting a whole bunch of great new journalist people. And I worked with a covering Pound Ridge and Lewisboro territory for them. It was a whole different form of journalism that I wasn't used to, but I I was beginning to enjoy it all of a sudden when they filed Chapter 11 and let go most of their, uh, you're starting to see a pattern here. Because right now, as right in that period of time, that was with the demise of all community newspaper. That was when online was taking over and a lot of community newspapers were having trouble staying afloat. So I had to leave Daily Voice and that's what led me to you, Brett, because you hired some of those daily voice guys. I eventually became one of them. <laughs> you know, I guess for another podcast, but I was a little counterintuitive. I mean, I knew, I saw the writing on the wall with community journalism. And I sort of, I sort of decided, you know, I was going to go head first anyway. And it's definitely a tough business. And we talked at the very beginning of the podcast about, you know, certain things that have to change in the industry in order to make it work. But going back real quick, how has the penalty from this crime impacted the rest of your life? You talked a little Uh, bit about about before and after. It destroyed me financially. I mean, it used to be um, 
I had a great nest egg. I was comfortable. I wasn't rich, but I was comfortable. I had a good savings. My parents, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, my parents passed away, so I had gotten some inheritance from them. In addition, I was uh, you know, working at Pool and Spa News that was paying me more than I could, you know, like, again, I'm not going to go into it, but a lot of money. They are a huge company. Hanley Wood owned them. They're the uh, second largest business-to-business publication and publisher in the country. They had great benefits and healthcare, and so the whole nine yards. So I lost all that. You know, I ended up, I was basically lived with this great, had this great financial net under me, lost all that. So I ended up living paycheck to paycheck, trying to keep a job without it going out of business, you know. So that's impacted me ever since. You know, I've never had the financial security that I once had, all because I was growing a plant that the government didn't want me to grow, you know, a plant, you know, a weed, to be more specific, that would grow freely. Um, along the roadways. If you want to get into a little bit about, you know, how I feel about that plant, <laughs> you know, we could do that. I would like to do that. I mean, I guess before we get into that a little bit, you know, obviously you're, you know, what you got convicted of is quite different than getting caught with a dime bag of weed. So beyond the penalty, do you have regrets in terms of what you were doing? You know, these were all my decisions. I mean, people had bad influencers for sure. You know, again, I don't feel like what we were doing was wrong, but I regret that I got involved in it for obvious reasons because look what happened to me. You know, people always say, well, it's the law. You got to follow the law. You know, I don't necessarily believe that. There are a lot of bad laws out there and we need to fight against them. I mean, in all kinds of realms. I take full responsibility for what happened to me. I made all the decisions. Yeah, there was bad people in my life that were pushing me in certain ways, but it would have been easy enough for me to say, no, thank you, and pull up stakes and move on. You know, I have tons of regrets over that because if it had never happened, you know, I'd be in a whole different place right now, you know, not going to a store and saying, should I buy the generic brand of this drink or the famous name brand, you know, and having to make those decisions, you know, when I'm grocery shopping and stuff like that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Sure, um, sure. And tell me, I mean, your thoughts on, you know, the New York state overturning, I guess, legalizing marijuana. Sure, sure. And it's about time. Now, it's kind of funny because we're talking about something, an issue that's like 100 years old. I'm not going to sit here and lecture everybody about how marijuana, which is really not the right name. That was a name that law enforcement dug out to make it seem more intimidating and more racist to make people, uh, you know, fear mongering. That's why I always I crack up when I see a police report where they arrested somebody for marijuana and they spell it with the H instead of the J, which is even more racist. <laughs> yeah. explain, um, explain that. I'm not, I'm not entirely following What do you mean by that? Well, M-A-R-I instead of J, there's an H, and that's the more Hispanic spelling of it. Is that a Spanish word or? Yeah. So uh, if you want me to go quickly into um, rendition of marijuana prohibition, it happened in the 1930s. And what happened was, is William Randolph Hearst, the famous newspaper guy, and he was a a magnet, uh, not just papers. And it's kind of funny, uh, like all my problems come from the father of American journalism. You know, he was in paper, obviously, and lumber and timber. These were all his, where his money lied and all these things. The cousin of cannabis is what they make paper out of. Oh, hemp. Uh, hemp, I'm sorry. Hemp, yes, yeah. Right. Yeah, so hemp in the same family as cannabis, um, except it doesn't have same levels of THC. You could smoke 
hemp until the cows came home and you, and you wouldn't get stoned on. But it gets lumped all in under federal law. It's all part of the same thing. But what hemp was used for was to make paper, to make clothes, to make the same things that you would make with wood. You know, it was a replacement. So you wouldn't have to chop down as many trees. You wouldn't have to make paper. You know, all this stuff was natural. So Hearst saw the writing on the wall. He didn't like this. So he's like, how can we stop hemp? Well, we can stop hemp by lumping it together with marijuana and make it seem like it's this evil drug. We can blame on ethnic uh, minorities, um, Mexicans that are coming up over the border. Does this all sound familiar? They're coming over to rape and pillage and get your children stoned on marijuana. Uh, The African-American jazz player was associated with uh, black jazz musicians in Chicago. It was all tied into them. And Hearst was able to finally convince the federal government that they needed to look into this. They hired a guy named Harry Onslinger, who became like the first drug czar. There was no DEA back then, but he was kind of the founding father of that. And he was the one that started the marijuana tax stamp, which said, okay, you can have marijuana, but there's a tax to it. But the way the paperwork was written is you could never pay this tax. So you would have the marijuana and it would be illegal. So basically they started a PR campaign and that's where you get these movies like Reefer Madness, Marijuana, Assassin of Youth. They're all these, which we look back on now as comedies. You know, we play them as a joke, but back then they were very useful tools in getting this legislation passed because they depicted marijuana as something that you would smoke and that you would jump out the window because you thought you could fly or that you would commit violent crimes, uh, sexual assault and things of that nature. And not just sexual assault, but sexual assault by a black person or, or a Mexican, you know. That was where the whole zeitgeist for marijuana started, the one that we still suffer from today. Science was not a big factor then. Over the years, there's been tons of studies. Obviously, cannabis has nothing to do with any of that. I saw a stand-up comedian say, you never hear about a guy smoking weed and beating his wife. You might hear about a guy smoking weed and forgetting to beat his wife. You know, there's no violence normally associated with that drug. Nobody's ever overdosed on it. it now, is not- I, I mean, just to challenge you for one second, I mean, question for you. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the one I'm interviewing, but can marijuana be abused or cannabis be abused? And also, I think there are probably certain people who um, probably are on the edge of some kind of psychotic break before their consumption of cannabis. It's probably not the right substance for certain people to consume who might be experiencing some kind of psychosis or on the verge of psychosis. Well, you can get them both here and I'd be happy to talk to them. Here's the thing. And you could say that about, first of all, marijuana is not physiologically addicting like alcohol or nicotine or heroin or cocaine. If you smoke weed and then you stop, you're not going to go through the withdrawal symptoms that those people are. You're not going to have the delirium tremors, the bugs under your skin, you know, the vomiting, you know, the three days of detox, you know, you're not going to go through. You might be a little irritable, you know, and maybe have a little insomnia, but for the most part, you know, nothing, it's not, you can get addicted to it psychologically, just like any other thing that activates dopamine or the pleasure centers of your brain. And that ranges everything 
from shopping to gambling to sex, you know, all these other things that people can become psychologically addicted to. Yes, you can become psychologically addicted to weed. Now, I haven't seen any data on how many of that people happen to. But like I said, once they quit, they're not going to curl up in the fetal position and throw up and and go through all that rigor. Now, are there people with pre-existing conditions that marijuana might exacerbate that? Maybe, but that's no reason to make it illegal and throw a bunch of you know, good citizens in jail over it. You know, those are individual situations that need to be dealt with on a case by case basis. And probably more studies need to be done in that. But 99% of the people who smoke weed are just fine. You know, some people make the argument that it's a gateway drug. I mean, you, you know, oh, yeah, I was happy. I was hoping that you would bring that up. And you and I have talked about this in the past. And that's an old chestnut that's still being bantied around. In fact, I saw somebody on Facebook bring it up the other day, and this was their argument. Marijuana is a gateway drug, and that's that, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. That was essentially their argument. So they're still getting their information from the 1930s and stuff like that. But marijuana has been proven time and time and time and time again that it is not a gateway drug. Now, do our heroin addicts and people who are struggling with hard drugs, did they once smoke marijuana at one time? Maybe. You know, probably. So you're but talking all... about the difference between causation versus correlation. Exactly. It's a correlation because they also probably drank beer. They also probably smoked cigarettes. They might have worn turtleneck sweaters, you know. So did their smoking cause them to use uh, smoking cigarettes, cause them to use marijuana? Did their drinking cause them to use marijuana? Maybe turtleneck sweaters are a gateway shirt. There's no correlation that if you talk to regular weed smokers today, you would ask them, have you ever tried cocaine or heroin? And overwhelming majority say they want anything to do with that. So it's not a gateway drug. Look at the states that have already had legal cannabis for a significant amount of time now. And the data will show you that there's been no increase in those states in the use of those sort of drugs. In fact, there's been a decrease in the amount of overdoses in those states. So I know a pot smoker who lives out in Colorado who has a very Mm -hmm. interesting perspective on it. He does not think it should be legal, even though he does smoke pot himself. He said, you know, just because he does it doesn't mean he thinks the government should be condoning it, which is kind of an ironic or contradictory kind of uh, position to take. And he feels, he said he he does see um, a lot of crime he lives specifically out in Denver, does see a lot of crime in Denver, and he does attribute it. I mean, he, he thinks a lot of the crime is related to drugs. Well, let's say anecdotal, and yeah. it's probably pretty wrong. I don't know what he's seeing or what he's smoking, but the data doesn't, <laughs> the data doesn't back up what he's saying. And like, what kind of crime? I would ask him, well, please, are people smoking weed and going out and robbing banks? You know, that's not happening. It's just not happening. To- I think he did discuss that there still is a... Um, there still is a black market for it, even though it's legal. Well, that's a, well, that's a whole different thing. Is that the yeah. crime he's talking about? Black market? I, I believe yeah. so. I mean, honestly, I need, I need to probably have a longer conversation with him about this. Well, and, and again, yeah. as, as governments, as state governments come in line and start to legalize this, this is one of the things they think, okay, we're going to legalize it and then we're going to tax the hell out of it, which they should, but there's a sweet spot that they need to find because if you tax it too much and make it so expensive, that now the black market weed is less expensive, well, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. You know, you want to get the tax right so that you're making good 
revenue off of it. But if you make it a usurious tax that's like way over the top and make it so expensive that it doesn't make sense for people to go to a dispensary to get it, let me go to Bill down the street because I'm going to pay $200 for it at the dispensary, but he's going to get it for me for 100 So when they're figuring out their tax structure, that's one of the things that they forget about. But if the crime he's talking about is people selling weed and the crime is, oh, we don't have a permit to sell it. You know, I think most people can (laughs) live with that. I mean, you know, they're not stealing anything. They're not breaking anything. They're not hurting anybody. They're not killing anybody. So, you know, when he says, oh, I've seen a lot of crime, you know, I would ask him to be hyper-specific about that, you know, because most of the, uh, in fact, I just read a big article that out in California, they're burning down and plowing under a lot of illegal grow feeds. And I'm all in favor of that. I don't want to see a black market. And these people who are making these illegal grow fields are hurting the environment. They're stealing water. They're putting pesticides and chemicals into the groundwater. And they're not doing it. The way this is all set up is there's a way, a right way and a wrong way you're supposed to do that. And there's procedures you're supposed to follow. These people aren't doing it. They're undercutting the legal you know, aspect of it. You know, think of a, a, in the liquor industry of people doing um, you know, stills out in their you know, backyards and stuff like that. It's the same idea. So, yeah, when I hear about illegal grows or people selling it on the side, you know, I'm opposed to that in states where it's legal. Let the market run itself, you know. We started this conversation today talking a little bit about your um, some medical issues that you have. Have you found that marijuana has brought some relief to any of the symptoms that you have? I have, and I didn't <laughs> set out that way. That I mean, I, I you know, I've been a, a cannabis uh, enthusiast for how old am I now? For maybe 40 40 plus years <laughs> and uh, the only crimes I've ever committed are because of, of having that, you know. Um, so anyway, I noticed when I got sick and my legs were hurting me, it were very stiff, that after smoking weed, my legs felt a lot better. I could putter around the apartment better. I could drive the car better. And I don't mean right after getting stoned. I didn't drive my car. But like later in the day, my legs felt looser and just more easy to manipulate. And just to remind our our listeners, you have pretty severe neuropathy in your legs. Correct, correct, which is caused by the diabetes, which causes a numbness and a pain that is associated with it, but provided relief for a short period of time, and that was welcome. And we can talk about this now because it's 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 legal in New York State, you know, in terms there you of go. in terms of con- consumption. So, and I'm such an advocate for it here. In, you know, if we want to wind things down here and talk about what's happening locally, please. Um, let's do. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Absolutely. When the law got passed, and we're still waiting to see about all particulars as they trickle down from Albany. I knew it was going to be inevitable that we would have it here in New York because everybody was migrating up to Massachusetts to get their. Uh, we, and so I think the politicians in New York saw the writing on the wall that they were losing all this revenue. Connecticut, New Jersey, they just all passed it. If we didn't, you know, we'd have this massive migration of people going and spending their money in other places. So when it finally got passed here, then part of that law, as most people know, is uh, the state is going to allow all its local municipalities to decide not whether it's legal or illegal in their communities, but whether they will allow, kind of from a zoning point of view, a dispensary within their borders. 
and they could opt out. The other option people, they could opt out or not do anything. If they did nothing, then it would automatically be okay. Albany will, I think they're creating something called the Cannabis Management Board. Mm -hmm. They will be handing out the permits for people who want to open these type of businesses. It's going to be a very rigorous process. And I believe it's mostly minorities that will be offered the first batch of permits, basically because they've been the ones most unfairly impacted by draconian marijuana laws. So they're giving them first shot to make some money. So here in Carmel, talking before it even came up for a vote, I've been talking to some board members and they said they were going to vote against it. And most of their reasons were just based in old science. What bothers me is none of them did their due diligence. None of them went out and visited, went up to Massachusetts and visited other communities that had it. Talk to law enforcement in communities that had it. Talk to store owners. Talk to councilmen and selectmen in communities that had it. They talked to cops, but they talked to cops in communities that didn't have it. The cops are opposed to this. Arresting marijuana folks you know, is the backbone of their industry. So, of course, they're opposed to it. So you talk to a cop in a community where it's been legal and they'll tell you, you know, crime has not gone up. Everything's hunky-dory. And I can confirm what you're saying. I mean, I, I did interview um, the police chief for an article in um, Maypac News and our other papers. I interviewed the police chief of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and he said exactly what you're saying. And then uh, when this all came up, somebody on Facebook wrote that they didn't want it here in, in Mayapak because it's going to turn Mayapak into the South Bronx. I'm sure the South Bronx appreciates the shout out on that one. But Do you, uh, do you think that, there's an element of racism when you hear it? Yeah, oh, like absolutely. That? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, these people are just living a life that's been filled with misinformation and they're still buying into this whole reefer madness thing. Um First of all, this stuff, if you've ever been to a dispensary, it ain't cheap, okay? So it's not like they're selling 10 you know, nickel bags in the alleyway. You know, you, know, you go into one of those things, you're going to be spending 100 200 300 bucks. There's limits on how much you can spend, but it ain't cheap, okay? So you're not going to get homeless people flocking there or, you know, you can um, back me up on this, but when you go to these dispensaries, you're going to see a cross-section of America. You're going to see old people, young people, affluent people, men in suits, to, you know, uh, millenniums in, in cargo shorts, you, you know, black people, white people, yellow people. You're going to see everybody, you know, little old ladies at these things, getting their weed for whatever reason. I can definitely can confirm that, that that is the case in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, a theory wellness, without a doubt. It's not a criminal element going to that store. It really is just a cross-section of America. And those people, they are waiting in line. They don't want any criminal element around. They're just ecstatic that they're able to do this without getting in trouble. Now, as far as like the neighborhoods that these things come in, they don't bring down the neighborhood. They actually give it a fiscal shot in the arm. You know, up there in Massachusetts, they're attracting people from other states. Those people are coming in, making it like a day trip. They're spending their money there. They're going to the restaurants. They're going to the other stores. They're spending what will be tax money for the state there. It's providing money into the neighborhood for revitalization. You're not seeing doors shuttered. It's just the opposite. You're seeing other shut down doors open back up again. This is what's happening. It becomes a destination spot. I know the chief of police here in Carmel has expressed concern about more DUIs. 
but people aren't like going in the store, buying it, and then hopping in their car and lighting up. Well, isn't part of the New York state law, it's not just dispensaries. Aren't there also consumption sites as well? Yeah, that's part of the legislation. Because I have Uh, have a concern about that, without a doubt. I do too. And I'm not really, you know, it wasn't until I started reading the minutiae in this thing. I don't know if other states have these places. You know, I don't know if Colorado, I don't think Massachusetts has them. And basically it's like a bar, but instead of going in to drink alcohol, you'd smoke weed. And the reason actually, I, I mean, I have a little bit of a problem with that. You can go to a restaurant, you can have a glass of wine or two over a two hour period. I mean, and legally, you know, you can consume one drink per hour and not be over the limit. And you can consume a nice meal with that over two hours and you'll be fine to drive home. I don't think that's the same with marijuana. I mean, you have a couple of puffs and that can really mess you up. Well, and and I agree, but marijuana is a lot like alcohol in that pretty much everybody reacts differently. I mean, you've heard about people saying he's an angry drunk, he's a happy drunk. You know, some people I can see can pound down like bourbon all day long and you talk to them and you wouldn't even know they have been drinking. And then there's other people who are like we like to call lightweights who take a couple of sips of beer and they're hammered. Everybody's different. Their body reacts in different ways. It's the same thing with weed. I've seen people smoke weed all day long and you talk to them and they can hold a really high level intellectual conversation with you. And then I've seen other people take a couple of tokes off a joint and like pass out there. So everybody's different. But that being said, that's why I'm not so crazy about, you know, how these, what did you call them? Marijuana bar, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, How that would work. I, I don't think we need them. You know, people can take, there are some people who smoke and be perfectly fine driving, but others who I would not want them to get behind the wheel no matter what. So I'm not in favor of those, you know, unless somebody can explain to me in a good way how they would be operated. But I think each individual community can deal with those on a local level. And just because you allow the dispensaries, I don't think it means you have to allow those things as well and how that would all work. But the dispensaries are totally safe. Right now, because of the classification of cannabis at the federal level, these dispensaries are not allowed to use the banking system. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that'll change. There's legislation in Congress right now that would change that. But right now, they're not allowed to use credit cards. It's an all-cash business. So, Or you can use a debit card, but you're not allowed to use a credit card. So there's a lot of cash going on there. So all these dispensaries, they use a lot of security. They have security. So you're not going to get a lot of riffraff hanging out there or trying to rob places because there's security all over the place, you know, for that very reason. Actually, I I can tell you, I mean, just from my interview with Theory Wellness, they gave stipends to the local police department to patrol there. Um, Yeah, they have a very good relationship with the police department. And actually going into some of the regulations you were talking about, I know for a while they were able to text with their customers. And then I believe the FCC put a kibosh on that, you know, because it's well, the customers deal. waiting in line. No, uh, I, I believe uh, one of their marketing tools, they prided themselves in being able to text with marketing people uh, or customer service people. Right. And then I believe like very recently, the FCC basically said, no, marijuana businesses cannot be texting. Yeah. What's yeah. going on right now? It, it, for people who don't know, uh, Drugs are, get a certain classification on the federal level. They're called schedules. Uh, and uh, right now, 
cannabis is a schedule one drug. So it's in the same category as heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, you know, methamphetamine, and, and drugs of that nature. It's considered schedule one, which is considered highly dangerous, which is really weird because the World Health Organization, who doesn't even list it in the top 100 most dangerous drugs in the world, whereas nicotine and alcohol are in the top 10. You know, people die from, as we know, from cigarette smoking all the time because of lung cancer and heart disease and things like that. People die from alcohol because of uh, you know, cirrhosis and other alcohol-related deaths, not to mention drunk driving. So both those drugs cause a lot of death, and yet they're highly popular and supported by government. So what Congress needs to do, and like I said, there's a, a bill floating around, and there has been off and on over the last couple of years, that would reschedule, reclassify marijuana to a Schedule 3 instead of Schedule 1. And what that would do, it wouldn't mean that the federal government is legalizing it, but it would lift all these restrictions where you know banks could now get involved. Banks could be part of financing, you know, providing loans for people wanting to open one of these stores. They would allow credit cards. They would allow you to open up Joe's dispensary could now open up a checking account, you know, and pay his employees, you know, with direct deposit and and just like any other normal business. That's what it would allow to have happen. You know, hopefully this thing is winding its way through and it has some level of bipartisan support as long as somebody doesn't stick some sort of you know, other type of legislation. You know, they do that all the time. They have a good piece of legislation, and then they attach something controversial to it, and it dies on the vine. Hopefully that won't happen this time. I mean, look, you and I don't really see eye to eye politically. I think you and I do see eye to eye on this topic. So I do wonder, is this a partisan issue or is this a generational issue? You know, because- a little of both. You know, it's funny because I see stories all the time about you know senior citizens smoking weed. Well, these senior citizens were at Woodstock, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's this generation. All right, so you see the older people, people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s in favor. And then the younger people, the Gen X, the millennials in favor of it because they're everything. It seems to be the middle ones, like the people in the 40s and 50s that are opposed to it, they sort of miss the carousel somehow. I don't know why, but I don't know if it's generational. It could, it could be also the people in their 40s and 50s are... You know, they're the yeah. parents of teenagers, basically. Yeah. 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 That could be. Oh, oh, and that leads to another topic, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. And I do think it's somewhat bipartisan. It's a substance that you can tax and raise money. So I know politicians like that, you know, and stuff like that. I do still think there's still some liberal slash conservative aspects to it and that liberals would be more in favor of it and conservatives wouldn't be. But that's too black and white. And I'm sure there's people out there that fit that description. I've seen plenty of crossover on this issue over the years back and forth. I think we're still fighting that a little bit, you know, in Congress. I think, you know, to get it through the Senate, which is 50-50 right now, to get more Republicans to come on board will be a challenge. But I think it all depends at the end of the day what the bill looks like. Correct. If it's palatable to them. I think they see the writing on the wall. And if they think it's something that will help them get reelected, they'll sign on immediately. Yeah, yeah I mean, I also think you have, a, you have a libertarian wing of both parties. Um, so exactly. This piece of legislation in various incarnations over the last few years has not even made it to the floor for a vote. 
because it's either died in committee or um, some of the conservative people who are opposed to it, you know, especially when they had the majority have crushed it before it even had a chance to get. I think things are opening up a little bit now. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. But just briefly going back to local cannabis dispensaries and talking to some of the town board members who have been opposed. And some of the things I've heard is, you know, its impact on teenagers. And what about the gummies? And I've heard one town board member, it's like, they're going to make kids candy. And I was like, what the hell is that? If you've ever been to one of these dispensaries, you will see that just to get in the door is a major effort. And breath, you can attest this. So when you're waiting in line, they come out and they check your driver's license to make sure you're over 21. Then when you get in the door, they check it yet again and you register before you can even get into the retail space. So now you're waiting because they don't let too many people into the retail space all at the same time. They don't want 50 people in their crowd. I think one of the reasons they're checking it multiple times, they don't want you purchasing more than a certain amount per day right? because they want to prevent the black market and make it difficult to leave Massachusetts and go to another state. Right. They don't want you to be a wholesaler. (laughs) They don't want you going in there and buying 10 pounds and now bringing it over to New York and selling it here for a profit. Yeah. Also, they slowly let people trickle into the retail space. Just It's easier to manage it that way. So it's a slow process. So nobody under 21 is getting in. As far as the gummies... And by, yes, the way, you can't, and by the way, you can't say the same thing about a liquor store. Um, exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 But let's talk about once it's brought home, like you make your purchases. And what, now, at that point, the onus is on the parents for good parenting. You know, it, you know, it's like those tied pods, you know, that look like candy. They're dishwashing. You know, you know, little, a one or two year old might see one of them. And, oh, it looks delicious and, and pop it in your mouth. That would do a lot more harm to you than a, a cannabis gummy. But the onus is on you to put those things up on a high shelf. The same thing with gummies. They don't make kids candies. You know, everybody likes candy, but the onus is on the parent. The same way they would lock up their liquor cabinet because a kid might like peppermint schnapps because it tastes like candy. Or you want to keep your teens out of it. You deal with your liquor, you know, you lock it, you put it away. You don't leave these gummies lying around on the coffee table. You know, you put them away. You, You don't show them, you eat them in your moment of private, you know? And so, um, it's interesting. Make- it is interesting though. And I, I, I've admitted on our, on the forum we had, um, and, and I'll admit this now, I do consume cannabis and, um, I will say that I have kids at home. They do not know that I consume it because I keep it private. However, I do enjoy having a glass of scotch at night and, yeah. you know, my kids do see me drink a glass of scotch. I don't abuse alcohol. No, I I don't get drunk with scotch. I enjoy sipping it over about an hour, but they do see me do that. So do you think the the culture behind this will change where it's more accepted? I I don't know. You know, it's hard to predict the future, but I think by the time your kids become teenagers that... Hopefully, it'll be more passe by then, you know. Um, it, it'll, Although it still frightens me. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I want it to be passe. I, I don't know. It's, I have, well, no, I mean, I have conflicted like, feelings about pa- it. I mean, passe like alcohol. Like you said, your kids see you drink scotch and they yeah. don't bat an eyelash, you know. I hope we can get to the day someday where kids can see their parents smoke a joint and not think twice about it. You know, as long as you're not. And like I said, everybody's different. Everybody reacts differently. 
you don't want to smoke a joint and pass out while you got your three or four year old kids there with you. So, you know, it comes to good parenting and being smart, you know, and the same way you wouldn't want to sit there and do shots of tequila, you know, while you're supposed to be looking after your three and four year olds, you know, there's there's common sense involved in all this. You know, I always hear this about the mask mandates and stuff like that. It's like, well, you know, I, you know, you hear elected officials say, I don't want to make it a mandate or make it a law. My constituents are smart enough. They can figure it out on their own. Well, you know, let's apply that same philosophy to weed. Once it's legal and all the structure is in place that you're supposed to follow, let's rely on our adults to follow it. If they don't, well, then there'll be repercussions for that. So so talking about good parenting, I do have to leave in about five minutes to pick up uh, my daughter from camp. So I'm going to end this within the next five minutes. I do want to ask you, I guess um, just going back a little bit to you know your earlier story is uh, you know are you are you applying to have your conviction overturned in California? And here's the weird thing: three or four years ago, I got a letter from um, the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office. Basically, said you know we know about your conviction in 2002 for this, and a lot of these convictions are being expunged right now. You know, would you be interested in this? And it gave me an email address to write. And so I wrote back to them saying, yes, you know, expunge, please expunge, you know. And I was waiting to hear back from them. And I probably was a little too passive about that. I never did hear back from anybody. And I can't find that letter. I misplaced it. And so I have no idea how to reach out. But from what I'm reading in the law that was passed, that a lot of these felony convictions were automatically expunged. Can I say for sure that mine was? I don't know. And at this point in time, I really don't care anymore because it's been over 20 years. Yeah. Except uh, you can maybe, uh, I wonder if you get your payment from the fine that you had to pay. Oh, they don't reimburse that. Okay, even, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. No, expunging just means it gets taken off your permanent record. You don't get reimbursed for any money that you paid yet. If that was the case, I'd certainly be a lot more proactive. No, they just want, <laughs> you know, uh, it's just for like when you're searching for a job, so it won't show, you know, when your employer, your potential employer does a background check, doesn't show up that you've been convicted of a felony and stuff like that. Now that, you know, we live in a more enlightened time and plus it's over 20 years. So I don't think it's even going to show up anymore, even if it is still there. You know, yeah, yeah. I've tried to find it and I can't find it. Okay. So it either got expunged or because of the passage of time which is another reason why I'm also willing to talk about it so openly. I mean, when I first moved back to New York, this was a tight kept secret, but as time has gone on, you know, like when I spoke to you about it, Brett, a couple of years ago, and now that it's legal here in New York, I mean, we have no place to buy it, but if I went somewhere else and bought it and was sitting out here on my front porch, smoking a joint, nobody could do a damn thing about it. So, (laughs) you know, I'm not worried about my record so much anymore. And if anybody ever wants to talk to me about it, bless their heart, I'd be willing to answer any questions because I'm a cautionary tale. You know, Uh, I would say it devastated my life, but it wasn't marijuana that devastated my life. It was the law surrounding it. You know, the draconian out-of-date laws that did it. You know, my last question is, I think we're going to get probably some kind of backlash from this podcast. Oh, Uh, no uh, doubt about it. (laughs) uh, So how how do you think that you and I should handle it? Well, it depends on what the backlash says. I mean, I I don't know. I can only just reemphasize what I've just said over the last hour or so. And, um, 
depends on what they want to confront me with. But I'm to the point now where I don't have time to deal with those sort of people anymore. If they read about it, if they educate themselves, understand the history of prohibition, there's plenty of documentaries, there's plenty of books written on the topic. They're not slanted. They're all factual. They'll lay things out in chronological order the way it happened. I mean, if it weren't for William Randolph Hearst, it never would have been made illegal to start with because nobody was concerned. There was no marijuana problem back in the 1920s or the 1910s. You didn't see cops or doctors or police or, or governments fretting over it. And in fact, they had to be hit over the head to have it brought to their attention that, yeah. that it might be a problem. So, you know, if people want to talk to me about it on an intellectual calm level, I'm more than willing to. Are there issues? Are there problems? Sure. But that's no reason to make it illegal and lock up people and ruin their lives over it. Yeah. Well, Bob, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your bravery for coming on. Any uh, the angry phone calls I get, I will refer <laughs> them to you. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your time. It was a good conversation. I, it was very interesting. I really appreciate your time with all this. No problem. I, I'm sorry I ran so long, but I, no, I think it's great. I get passionate. <laughs> I, I'm not going to stop a podcast if it's a good, good, interesting conversation. So thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, take care. Bye.